I'm so glad you all are here today, and uh, we're just delighted to begin to share this day with you. Uh, you know, Joe, we, we kid about you know, praying for our sins, but isn't that part of the hope of Easter, that when we get together, we all know that, that uh, we're broken people. We all know instinctively, without being told, nobody has to come and preach at you and condemn you to, for you to know that there are things in your life, there are things about you uh, that aren't what you wish they were, let alone what other people wish they were, and certainly not what you would think a perfect and a holy God would hope they would be. And, and that's really the point of the story, um, that God knows that, and that God comes in and seeks to find us to bridge the gap between who we are and who he created us to be. And so God sent Jesus Christ, born in an obscure village, uh, born at a, in, a, in the most unlikely way possible, uh, unremarkable, almost unnoticed. And yet as he grew and he began to teach and draw disciples to himself, and as he taught these others, as they saw the miracles, as they heard the hope that he said, that, that, that God's kingdom is real and that it's here and that it's among you, and that sin doesn't have to define you, that your brokenness does not have to define you. And crowds kept coming and coming and coming, and more and more people heard the story, and, and there was a buzz around as, as Jesus would heal a blind man or, or as he would raise somebody from the dead, and, and he would work in unconventional ways. And, and, and the bigger the crowd got, the, the angrier the religious people became, and the more nervous the the Roman officials became, and and as they began to conspire together against this would-be Messiah, this itinerant preacher, this son of a carpenter, they finally figured out a way to trap him, and they crucified him. A horrible, horrible death used thousands and thousands of times by the Roman government, just as a reminder to anybody who would look on any hill throughout the Roman Empire where there would be crosses hanging to say, we are in charge. Caesar is Lord, and don't forget it, or we will kill you. And so Jesus was crucified, just like hundreds of other people. I mean, his crucifixion is not what sets him apart. His claim that he is the Son of God is not what sets him apart. There had been many, many people who had claimed to be the Messiah. His claim that somehow his death could atone for all of our sin and brokenness is not what set him apart. Many, many people had claimed such things. But now here he was, he'd been crucified and dead, and all these who'd been following, they, they, had, they had hoped that he was the one, and yet what they discovered is that their hopes were, were dashed, their hopes were just disappointments. Hope quickly turns into disappointment. You know that, don't you? Every disappointment you have started out as a hope. You had hoped something would go differently, and it didn't. And then what replaces hope is disappointment. And that's exactly where the disciples were. You see, we, we sometimes build these guys up and put them on a pedestal. We, we sometimes have in our mind that they had some knowledge we don't have, like they're so different than us. But I mean, they walked with Jesus for three years constantly with this hope that he was the Messiah, that he was going to kick out the Roman em emperor, that he was going to kick Rome out of Israel, and he was going to finally be the king. And guess what? We're going to be his posse. We're going to sit on his right and his left. We're going to be in control of this place. That's what they'd hoped for. But messiahs don't get arrested. And messiahs don't get crucified Messiah has come to overthrow the oppressor, not to be killed by them. 
And so I want to look this morning at a particular story that is one of my favorite stories of the resurrection. You can find it in your Bible in Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24, if you were with us in the sunrise service, we looked at this same passage of scripture. We started at chapter, at verse 1 and went through verse 12. We're going to pick up in verse 13 of Luke chapter 24 as we fi- find this uh, account of these two disciples of Jesus. Now, they're not two of the main apostles. These are kind of two people who were on the edges. We don't know a lot about them, but they were followers of Jesus throughout his ministry. Luke chapter 24, verse 13. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. Now, that everything that had happened is the fact that Jesus had been crucified and all that it meant. That what does this mean for us now that Jesus is dead? Because this obviously didn't go the way that we had planned. And the very fact that they are leaving Jerusalem that they have left the city and are going back home, indicates that they had given up. It's over. Party's over. Let's all go home. You know, we, we've lost. The bad guys won. And we better get out of town. And so their leaving Jerusalem is, is more than just the fact they're going back home. It's a statement of their disappointment. They're headed back. Verse 15. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, But, read this with me, they were kept from, yeah, some of you are new, you don't know we do this, we read the other, let's try it again. They were kept from recognizing him. Yeah, they were kept from recognizing him. That is such a strange thing for the scripture to say, isn't it? That somehow they were kept from recognizing him. I mean, if God is going to go to all the trouble to raise Jesus from the dead, I would think that we should, he would have done it today when we have the internet. I mean, when it could have been live streamed and everybody could have seen it and everybody would have known. I mean, that would, if I were God, that's what I would have done. I would have sent Jesus in about you know, the year 2000, maybe 1995, and he would have lived his life. And at the peak of technology, when everybody could have seen it and everybody would have known it, then I would have, you know, th- then I would have allowed him to rise from the dead so that the whole world would see and there would be no doubt. And here he is showing up on this obscure road to this obscure village that archaeologists still really don't know where it is. And he appears to two people. I mean, God, can you be a little more efficient with your marketing plan here? (laughs) So he appears to them. And it wasn't just that they didn't see him. It says, says that they were kept from seeing him. Now I got to thinking about this and I looked in all the other gospel accounts and every other gospel account tells us that God prevented people from seeing Jesus after the resurrection. Look, at, look with me just for a second. We'll have it on the screen. You don't have to turn in your Bibles. Mark chapter 16, verse 12. Afterward, Jesus appeared in a different form to two of them while they were walking in the country. This is Mark telling this same story. The gospel of John, John 20, verse 14. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. John again in chapter 21, verse 4. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. And Matthew also gets in on the action, chapter 28, verse 17. Now, this verse right here is in front of an entire crowd. Right before Jesus says the final words that he will say on earth, listen to what it says. Listen to what Matthew says. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but what? Some doubted. Now, I find this fascinating. Why would the gospel writers include these passages if they were trying to propagate a lie? You ever thought about that? Have you ever thought about the fact that if this was all a hoax, that if Jesus really didn't come back from the dead, and that Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Peter, Paul, they were all in on this grand conspiracy, 
why would they have included these verses that seem to say, even after Jesus was alive, some people doubted. Some people didn't see him. They were walking with him, and they did not recognize him. You see, doubt has always been part of the Easter story. So if you're here this morning, and you have doubts, you're in good company. And I don't just mean the people who are around you. I mean the people who lived it and experienced it. I mean the people who walked and saw it with their own eyes, who also doubted. And here's what you need to know. Without doubt, there's no possibility of faith. You see, the Bible says that you can't hope for something you can see. And that God is most pleased. What God most wants in your life is faith. God wants you to have faith. That's what he's inviting you to. That's why I believe these two people walking on the road to Emmaus didn't see Jesus. Back to the passage, Luke 24, verse 17. He, being Jesus, asked them, What are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. Now, I, I think this is an important passage because their inability to see Jesus wasn't just because his appearance had been changed. See, their inability to see Jesus also was based on the fact they weren't looking at him. Their faces were downcast. All throughout the Bible, Old and New Testament, anytime the Bible refers to somebody's as, as face as being downcast, it's a, ref, it's a reference to the condition of their soul. You've been there. You've had your face downcast. Sometimes where you were so filled with shame, you couldn't lift your head to look at the people around you. There have been times where you, where you were so despondent and so disconnected from what was going on around you because of the hurt of, of disappointment, of divorce, because of the death of somebody that you just kept your face towards the ground because your face is downcast. These guys' face were downcast. So even if Jesus' appearance hadn't been changed, I don't think they'd have seen him anyway because their faces are downcast because that's what disappointment does to us. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And listen to this. You see, the Bible's got a lot of humor in it. You should read this book. <laughs> Jesus totally sets him up. Listen to what he says. What things, he asked. <laughs> I mean, Jesus is totally setting these guys up. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. Now, first of all, I want you to notice something. Go back to the beginning of their description. They replied, he was a prophet, powerful in word and in deed. They acknowledged that Jesus was a prophet, a powerful person. But guess what they don't say he was? They don't say he was the Messiah. They don't say he was the Savior. Why don't they say that? Because listen to what they say next. But we had hoped. We had hoped. We had hoped he was more than a prophet. We had hoped he was more than a good teacher. We had hoped he was more than a miracle worker. We had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. This was the discouragement that all the apostles felt. All the people following Jesus felt this way. The gospel writer picks these two guys, and it represents everything that the apostles were feeling, but it represents more than what they were feeling, doesn't it? Because you felt that way too. I felt that way. I felt like there were times, God, I had hoped you would do something. Because I've prayed, and I've, done every, I've read my Bible, and I know what your promises say. And God, I had hoped that you would work a miracle. 
I had hoped. It wasn't only that they had placed their hope in Jesus and now he was dead. It was that he should have defeated the oppressive Romans instead of the Romans killing him. We had hoped. Past tense. We no longer do. That describes some of you who are here today. And I don't know what brought you out. Maybe it's just because it's Easter and that's what you're supposed to do. Maybe there's somebody sitting next to you who made you come. But you had hoped. You had hoped for more from God than what you've gotten. And you feel just like these fellows did. Verse 21. And what is more? It is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. Let me translate that. In addition, there are these crazy women going around. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but they did not see Jesus. Now, this to me is one of the most amazing passages of Scripture because I think it describes for us the power of doubt in our life. Listen to what they say. First of all, they acknowledge that it was the third day which indicates that they knew something was supposed to happen on the third day. Jesus, after all, had been telling his people this from the very beginning, and somehow people didn't hear him. Because let's face it, we hear from God what we want to hear from God many times, don't we? I mean, if we like the verse, if we like the promise, we claim that. But the minute the Bible says something that makes us uncomfortable, the minute the Bible says something that convicts us, the minute we hear something the Holy Spirit nudges in the way, well, that can't be God. Let me just ignore that. So, so they had ignored this over and over again, but after the crucifixion, there were some people who might have remembered. Listen to some of the things Jesus said, how clearly he said it. Luke chapter 18, verse 33. They flogged him, and this is Jesus talking about what will happen. They will flog him and kill him. On the third day, he will rise again. What about that don't you understand, Cleopas? Matthew chapter 17, verse 23. They will kill him, and on the third day, he will be raised to life. Matthew 20, verse 19. And they will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he will be raised to life. Time and time again, Jesus told them what was going to happen, but they didn't listen. They, they weren't listening to, to, to what Jesus had to say because it didn't fit their paradigm. That wasn't the kind of Messiah that they wanted. See, the evidence, all the evidence was supporting these crazy women who'd gone to the tomb that morning. They'd gotten up on the third day and gone and the tomb was empty and they came back and reported. But even with that happening, these two people still did not believe. They didn't believe. See, the story of the resurrection is beginning to circulate. There are murmurs and rumors that are happening, that are going around. But they dismissed all of that out of hand. So much so that they weren't even going to stay in Jerusalem to see if it was true. Let's just get out of here. People have lost their minds because dead people don't come back to life. Something must have happened. The Roman soldiers must have taken the body. But we know that can't be true. Because if the Roman soldiers or if the Jewish leaders had taken the body, don't you think they would have produced it to prove that this man was a fraud? And yet 2,000 years later, where's the body? Where is it? See, see they, I don't know what they were thinking, but they, even with the evidence that they were presented, they could not believe it, and so they were leaving town. Verse 25, he, Jesus, said to them, How foolish you are. 
And how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. You see, here's what's going on. First century Jews did not see the Messiah as a suffering figure. This was a completely foreign concept to them. It wasn't at all what they expected God to do. And even though Jesus had said it many times, even though the prophet Isaiah had prophesied it centuries before, the people in Jesus' day could not conceive of this kind of Messiah. Messiahs come and destroy other people. They themselves are not destroyed. See, N.T. Wright, the theologian, says this. He's talking about these two disciples. He said, they had been reading the Bible through the wrong end of the telescope. They had been seeing it as the long story of how God would redeem Israel from suffering. But it was instead the story of how God would redeem Israel through suffering. Through, in particular, the suffering which would be taken on himself by Israel's representative, the Messiah. Sometimes we're blind by what we think we know. Messiahs don't die. Dead men don't come back to life. And I'm convinced that so many times, like these two walking on the road, we totally miss what God is doing in our life because it's not what we expect, because it doesn't fit our paradigm. And so we hit a hardship in our life, and we think, well, God can't be in this. Surely God wouldn't, God wouldn't create a circumstance whereby I would suffer, whereby my child would die, whereby my wife would be diagnosed with a terrible disease, where my husband would leave me. That can't be God. And yet over and over again in the scriptures from very beginning to end, you look at it time and time again and you find how God specializes in the tragedies of our life. And it is from the tragedy of your life that God will bring about the resurrection of hope and new life. And were we to walk through this life and everything go our way, we would have no need for a God at all, would we? We would think of ourselves as God. Verse 28, as they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it's nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Sound familiar? Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. I love that. I love that. When we finally open our eyes and realize what's going on, it's gone like that. That that Jesus, it's almost like Jesus is saying, come on, keep believing. Keep trusting in what you don't see. Now that you believe me and I was with you and you didn't recognize me, now that you believe it was me, I'm gone somewhere else because I want you to keep believing in what you cannot see. Because this earth, this world that you live in will constantly try to tell you that what you see is the only thing that is what is real. But God says there's something more than this brokenness that you live in. There's hope beyond what you can see. Open your eyes and see it. He disappeared from their sight, and they asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while, we talked with, while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? I, I'm so convinced that so often our hearts discern God's presence long before our eyes do. And yet we're so convinced in our world that's been you know, controlled by uh, modern thinking for the last 500 years that unless we can see it, unless we can touch it, it must not be real. And the invitation to the scripture is don't always trust what you see. Trust what your heart is telling you. Jesus meets us 
around the table. He meets us around that sacrifice, his sacrifice, his suffering, as they broke the bread and they remembered, this is my body. They remembered, Jesus had told them just a few days before, every time you eat this bread and you see this body broke, this bread broken, I want you to remember my body, which was broken for you. When you drink this wine, I want you to remember my blood poured out. And in that moment, they realized it was Jesus. And then they got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the 11 of those with them. They assembled together, and they were assembled together and saying, It is true. The Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. The women aren't as crazy as we think they were. He's alive. And it's not just because we saw an empty tomb now. It's because we've seen him. We sat at the table with him. We experienced him. Listen, as we just kind of draw to a close, and I know everybody's got plans for, for Easter, and, and, and I, I hope you spend a lot of great time with your family, but, but I don't want you to come to church this morning and leave and check it off your box and say, I did my Easter duty, and I showed up at church, and then I went and had a good Easter lunch and an Easter egg hunt. I want you to understand the power of this message to change your tomorrow and your day after tomorrow and your next week and your next month and your eternity. And, and if you're battling disappointments, I want you to know that every disappointment you've suffered began as a hope. It began as something you couldn't see. Maybe for you, uh, maybe it was the hope of, of this ideal marriage. And before you ever met your spouse, you had it in your mind. It was just a hope because you couldn't see it, but you knew it was there. And maybe for you, that hope was dashed in divorce, or maybe for you, it never happened because you never got married, but you had a hope. Some of you had a hope of a, of a retirement where you'd enjoy your family and you'd enjoy your time off. And, and it wasn't real because you hadn't experienced it. It was just something in the future. But then the economy took a turn south. Your health turned down. Your spouse health had a problem. Something came up and, and it didn't become a reality and that hope turned into a disappointment. You had hopes for your career, things you couldn't see, but your mind dreamed that it would be true and it didn't happen. Your education, your kids, life is filled with disappointments. It seldom turns out the way that we hope it will. And sometimes we think to ourselves, if my life had just been different, if things had just turned out differently, if what I had hoped had been true, then I could point to God. Then I could find God. Then I could know God. But what if God isn't somewhere else in another life that you didn't live? What if God is present right where you are in the middle of all your disappointments and your failures and your brokenness? What if God is right in the middle of your shame and your sin what if God is right in the middle of your grief? What if Jesus isn't somewhere else in a better circumstance, in a better life, but he's right with you and your face is downcast and you can't see him because maybe he doesn't look like the way you expected him to look. But what if God is waiting for you in the bankruptcy court or the funeral home or the divorce court? How can God be omnipotent and not be in those places too? I'm telling you, God will meet you in your disappointment. Listen to what it says in Romans chapter 5, verse 8. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, God didn't wait for you to get your act together before he sent his Savior to you. Because if he had waited for you to get your act together, Jesus would have never even come. He meets you right in the middle of your sin. And just because you don't see him doesn't mean that he isn't there, doesn't mean that he isn't real. 
I love what the prophet Jeremiah said 700 years before Jesus was born. Jeremiah chapter 29, 13, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. So here's my Easter challenge for you today. Lift up your heads. Lift up your heads. Stop looking at your circumstances. Stop living in your disappointment. Stop living in your shame. Stop living in your sin. Lift up your heads and do not be distracted by what is less than real. I know it feels more real than what I'm saying to you today, but I promise you it's not. In 100,000 years, Jesus will still be alive. The problems that you are facing today will be long gone. And it all is because Jesus is alive. Lift up your heads. Jesus could have made it obvious to these two guys walking down the road, but he didn't. Because God is more concerned with growing your faith than in maintaining your happiness. But that's not the God we often want to find, is it? And maybe that's why you're not finding him. Maybe you're not finding him because you're looking for a God to meet everything you anticipated him to be and to make you happy. And God's trying to grow your faith. God's trying to increase your strength. God's trying to give you hope. God may be using your disappointments to reveal himself to you. But I want to give you one final verse this morning as we close. It's also found in Romans chapter 8, verse 32. Because in your darkest moments, when you think that surely God's abandoned you, surely God's forgotten you, I want you to know Jesus felt that way too on the cross. And Jesus suffered abandonment so that we wouldn't have to. And listen to what Paul says in Romans 8, verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? You know what this verse tells me? It's going to be okay. Because if God, would go to that, if God would go to that much pain, if God would endure that much suffering, then surely God will provide a way. Surely God will meet me in the midst of this pain and this trial and reveal to me his resurrected son, Jesus Christ. My prayer for you today is that you would know him and that you'd place your faith in him and that if you're here today and you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, the invitation is so, so simple. It's not easy, but it's simple. And it's just this. It's just you confess your need for a savior. You confess your sin and your brokenness. You acknowledge that Jesus is the Son of God, that his death on the cross was the atonement for your sin, and that God raised him from the dead. And then you commit your life to follow after him, just to seek to live by the pattern, the example he set for us. And the Bible says that's it. It's as easy as that. But it's a gift that you receive. It's a gift that you accept. God doesn't force it on you. So my prayer for you this Easter is that this Easter will be more than the celebration of something that happened 2,000 years ago. It will be the celebration of a resurrection that happens in your own heart today. Will you bow your heads and pray with me? If you're here today and you're not a believer, but you would like to invite Christ into your heart as your Lord and Savior today, I'm going to just say a prayer. It's a prayer that many of us in this room have prayed And there's nothing magical or mystical about the prayer. It's a simple, simple prayer. And in your own heart, you don't have to say it out loud, but in your own heart, if you truly, truly are longing for this Savior, then you just repeat it. And I assure you that God will hear this prayer and he will answer. 
Father, I come to you today knowing that I'm a sinner, that I've failed, that I've fallen short of expectations for myself. I've fallen short of expectations for the people around me, and I've certainly fallen short of the expectations a holy and a righteous God has. I believe Jesus came, and that his death on the cross was payment for my sins, and that his resurrection means the hope of new life for eternity. I commit my life to follow after you. I invite you to be Lord of my life. Father, for today, for anybody who's prayed that prayer, I thank you that you've heard it and that you've already responded and that today there are, there are new sons and daughters that have been adopted into the family because of the grace of Jesus Christ. Father, for those who are here today who believed, who had hoped, but who have wandered away because of disappointments, I pray, Lord, that like these two disciples walking down the road, they'd lift their heads and in a moment, they would see the truth and remember that you've been walking by them all along. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the hope of the resurrection. And we pray, Lord, that as we leave here today, we will be resurrected people. And Father, that your resurrection would continue to make us new even as you are seeking to make all things in your creation new again. Father, for this offering that we collect, we pray your blessings upon it. We thank you, Lord, for all that you've given us. Lord, our, our financial wealth, our physical well-being is nothing compared to the sacrifice of your son. So we give back to you joyfully, hopefully, longingly, anticipating that day when our faith shall be made sight. For we pray it in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.